Well, good morning, church. Aren't you excited to be here? I can, I can hear it in your voice. It's, it's wonderful. Let's stand together, and we're going to sing to the Lord this morning. Let's sing. Let's tell him how holy he is. So men, you're with me, you lead out, and women, you sing with Sarah, she's going to echo. You are holy. You are holy. You are mighty. You are mighty. You are worthy. You are worthy. Worthy of praise. I will follow. I will follow. I will listen. I will listen. I will love you. I will love you. All of my days. All of my days. And I will sing to and worship the Savior, the hope 
everybody Super Bowl Sunday right so it's still a day of grief for me because we don't have the Cowboys in it but hopefully you all have some good plans this evening and we can celebrate and enjoy the Sabbath day by taking in some fun activities with friends and family Uh, but before we get to anything like that today we want to come in a spirit of fellowship in a spirit of gratitude in a spirit of praise and enjoy our time together and so uh, I would just love to extend a, a word of welcome to each of you that are here today Uh, Whether you've been a longtime member or this is your first time to visit with us, we're we're glad that you're here. Uh, One of the things that we often try to do, and I I bring this to our attention every Sunday, is that it's really helpful for us to know who is visiting and ways that we could maybe reach out to you and and connect with you and see what questions you may have or any needs that you may bring to our attention. 
So if you have a worship guide, you can take the time to fill that out, rip off the side of the page, and leave us some of those basic details so we can follow up with you. I would also tell you that if you uh, need to update your information, if it's been a while since uh, you've let us know what address you're at or, or phone number you use, anything along those lines, it's always helpful for us to update our records. In fact, one of the things that I was going to tell you, uh, the last couple of weeks, we've really been pushing this initiative towards prayer. And I'm really excited about that. And we, we took time, some time to really kind of build those philosophies and those approaches into what we're doing as a church. Uh, we, we've been meeting corporately. Uh, we're going to start doing that the last Wednesday of every month. And then last week, we really, uh, I guess, finished that discussion on prayer and fasting and, and talked about how we're going to set aside a day every month to fast and pray. And so that's what the names are out there on the bulletin board. And, and I'll say it again, if you haven't signed up for a day yet, please do so. We'd encourage you to participate in that. But I'd also tell you that one of the things we're trying to do, we're, we're testing out something, but we're trying to send you just simple notifications and reminders and words of encouragement on the day that you've set aside to pray and fast. And so if you go on your day, and this, we just started that on February 1st, and so just beginning February 1, if you get to your day and you didn't receive any information from us, if you didn't get a text or an email, please let us know. Just give us a phone call and just say, hey, we didn't get something. We'll, we'll go back and we'll check our information and, and kind of make sure that we're working out some of these kinks. But that's, that's one of the ways that we try to uh, go along in this journey with you and continue to foster this spirit of prayer. So we've got a lot of fun things uh, happening here in this church, a lot of things that we're going to continue to discuss in terms of these key convictions Today, we're going to discuss a little bit further into the concept of discipleship, and, and I'm really excited about this subject and this topic. But before we continue any further, let, let's just think and reflect a little bit about what it is that we're here to do. And, you know, so many times, if you're like me, you, you can get task-oriented, and you think about everything else that you have ahead of you and the rest of the day, the rest of your week, and, and you think about all the things that you're trying to overcome and, and all the things that you have to deal with or the things that you have to face. And, and sometimes we come in here and we sing songs out of habit, uh, we, we go through the motions out of routine, and we miss the depth and the significance of what it is that we're actually claiming to believe. Now, I love this song. It's a familiar song we just sang, but to, to think about the words that our God is mighty to save. And so I wonder, what, what is it that you need deliverance from this morning? Where do you need to see God's saving work and his saving hand in your life? Well, let's celebrate the fact that our God is strong. He is mighty. He is not some distant deity. He is in our midst. He is here this morning, and he is calling us to himself to awaken us to the power of what it means to follow him and to see his mighty deliverance. So let's focus on him and continue to give him the glory that he deserves. Would you bow your heads in prayer? Father, we love you, and we celebrate your strength your deliverance, the fact that you call us to yourself and we can follow you and see the glories, the miracles of your mighty hand. Help us to see them clearly today. Help them to shape us, to give us an understanding of who we are and what it means to really follow you. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come, that you'd be in our midst, and that we would worship you in the spirit of truth, and love, a spirit of praise and gratitude. For we pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus our Lord. Amen and amen. All right, well, let me invite the children forward so you can have a word with Miss Caroline. 
The rest of you get on up and change seats. No, I don't really do that. Just say hi to somebody. sing great is your faithfulness great is your faithfulness oh God you wrestle with a sinner's heart you lead us by still waters into mercy and nothing can keep us apart so remember your people, remember your children, remember your promise, oh God. Your grace is enough, your grace is enough, your grace is enough for me. Heaven reaching out to us, your grace is enough for me. God, I sing your grace is enough, risen in your love, your grace is enough for me. church you know today is a very very neat day we are going to learn about being a follower now and when we look at scripture a lot of times when they talk about followers they talk about disciples now a disciple follows and does what somebody says now I had not realized we were going to have amazing handbells up here and I did not realize that I was going to have an amazing handbell director up here can you tell everybody your name Josiah Josiah is an amazing handbell director. And you know what? So I'm going to, Josiah, I want you to do the magic thing. Can everybody see Josiah? No. Ready? Point at her. Okay. Ready? She's going to point at you. Oh, my goodness. Every time she points at him, he knows to ring the handbell. You know what? That's pretty impressive, right? Now, I'm not certain, but I'm kind of betting this might be his first-hand bell performance. 
of many more to come. But you know what? One of the things that he knew to do is he knew that whenever his director pointed at him, that it was time to play the handbells. You know what? If we are believers in Christ, we have someone who points at us and tells us when we're supposed to act and what we're supposed to do. He helps us know when we're supposed to be extra kind. He helps us know whenever we're supposed to be telling people about Jesus. And you know what? He helps us know whenever we go above and beyond for other people, that we give our best to God and that we keep God first in all that we do. But the only way that we're going to know what we're supposed to do is if we keep our eyes on God. Josiah knew when to play the handbells by looking at his director. If we don't keep looking at our director, if we don't keep looking at Jesus, we're not going to know what to do and we're not going to know when to do it. Now, I have another friend that's going to read scripture for us and she's going to help us out here. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. You know what? God's told us what to do. He was very specific. He said that he had all the power and he had all the, th the authority. He has all the power in heaven. He has all the power and authority on earth. And he's told us what to do. And as followers, as disciples, that's what we're supposed to do, is we're supposed to go out and make other disciples. Does he say that if you're five, you don't have to do it? No. Does he say that you don't have to go make disciples till you're 20? No, even younger than that. If we are followers of Jesus, that's our responsibility to go and help other people know how they can follow Jesus too. And I know that you guys can be a huge part of that because I know that you guys watch to what Jesus tells you to do. Let's pray together. Father, I, I look around up here and I see a herd of massive disciples that can share your love and share your goodness. Father, help us to have our eyes so fixed on you that when you point at us and tell, it's our time, and tell us that it's our time to tell other people about Jesus, that we would step into that and we would step into that boldly, not because we're amazing, but because you have all authority, because you have all things in your hands. Help us at 5 and 6, at 8 and 10, at 25, 26, at 50, 60, and more, to be your disciples, to be focused on you, and to be obedient, to make others disciples and followers of yours. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
stand.
because he lives all fear is gone because I know he holds the future and life is worth a living just because he lives how sweet to hold a newborn baby and feel the pride and the joy he gives but greater still the calm assurance the child can face on certain days because he lives because he lives i can face tomorrow because he lives all fear is gone because i know he holds the future and a life is worth a living just because he lives. Amen. You can be seated. Amen. Thanks, Casey. Hey, you ever have those moments where you think you've had a conversation with people only to realize you haven't? Um, that was me earlier this week. I meant to say this in the introduction earlier. In your worship guide, it's, it's referencing that we're going to be speaking, speaking, I can do it preaching from Matthew 28, but in reality, we're going to be in Luke 14. I had that conversation with myself earlier in the week and just forgot to tell anybody. And so uh, that's my bad. Uh, that's on me in terms of the improper scripture reference, but we'll get to that here in a little bit. Um, so I'm curious, how many people out there love traveling? I, I love traveling. Am I alone in that? Can I get an amen? Right? I mean, traveling is just a lot of fun for a lot of different reasons. I, I love the new experiences. I love going to a different city, different places, seeing different things, and, and, and all the excitement and the enthusiasm that comes with that. But, but it's not lost on me that not every element of traveling is all that exciting and thrilling, right? Like, like for me, planes, flying. I've never been a big fan of flying, okay? Now, when I was younger, I actually enjoyed it. It didn't bother me so much. But then somewhere along the way, I kind of reached the age of adulthood where I could think logically, and it just hit me. I'm like, I'm 35,000 feet in the air, trapped in a giant metal tube. That should not work, you know? And so all I know is that I'm no physicist, but metal should be falling to the earth, not just magically suspended in air. So I usually fly with a little bit of anxiety about this fact. When I was younger, it didn't bother me at all. I'd be looking out the window, and I'd be looking at the, cl the clouds and looking down at the little bitty cars, thinking it was so neat. Get on the plane now, I'm like, window shade shut keep my eyes forward and just do everything I can to not think that I'm on a plane, right? Just take my mind off of it. I'm just on one giant uncomfortable bus. You know, that's what I try to tell myself. And, and so I've never really enjoyed flying. And it's not just the act of flying, it's the airports. You know, you have problems with the check-in counter, check luggage, you get delays, all these different things that, complicate it, that can complicate it. But, but nonetheless, there, there are other elements of traveling that even for those of us that enjoy traveling, can acknowledge that part of the reason it can be difficult is we're out of our comfort zone. Right? You go to a new place, new city, and you're taken in new environments, and you don't have the things that are familiar to you, and that can be unsettling. 
Those feelings are amplified when you go internationally, correct? When you go overseas, now all of a sudden it's, it's a whole nother level because now we're talking about a new language, new currency, new foods, new customs. It, it can be really uncomfortable at times, even though it can be exciting as well. Well, if I were to submit to you probably the one picture dynamic that to me is the most challenging with travel, it would be an international setting, but one where you're actually in charge of other people and you're supervising a team of some sort. Okay, that's where a lot of things can go wrong. And ironically, I'm describing my former job. This is what I used to do for a living in many respects. And, and, and I'll never forget the first mission trip that I went on and led as, as the, the leader, as the missions pastor at First Arlington. I'd been at the job a couple of months and I was going to Sierra Leone with three or four other guys, all about my age. And um, there was just a kind of a recipe for some unsettledness. I, I didn't really want to go on the trip initially anyway, because I was so new to the environment. I, I didn't really know what was going on in the country. Didn't really understand the actual work and the ministry that we were pursuing. I, I'd never led a trip before. I had nobody that was going to go with me to kind of show me the way and model some things for me. So I was, I was pretty much flying blind. And, and that just made me a little uncomfortable. But the dynamics really kind of got interesting towards the end of the trip and, and really kind of began to, to give me a sense of why traveling can often be so unsettling. It, it started on one hand towards the end of the trip where one of the team members actually kind of got in an altercation with another team member. And it started out as being good, innocent, fun, but eventually I guess it escalated and this guy was just seething. I mean, he was so angry and he's out on the balcony. We're on this two-story apartment late at night and, and it's like 1130 and he's just so furious, and I'm trying to talk to him a little bit, and he's just telling me, he's like, I'm leaving. I'm, I'm, I'm walking off this compound. I'm, I'm out of here. I don't know if you've been to Sierra Leone, but roaming the streets of Sierra Leone at 1130 at night is not a good idea. And so I'm trying to calm him down, and I'm like, uh, please don't. Like, just stay here, please. You know, count to 10, count to 100, whatever, whatever you need to do to calm down. And so, so he's upset, and I, I feel like I've talked him off the ledge, but but I go to bed that night really not knowing if he's gonna be there when I wake up. And so that was the first component. The second component is when we actually start to leave the next day or two and we show up at the airport and another team member gets sick. And, and we're standing there in the airport and he's just got that look on his face, right? I mean, you can just tell he is not feeling good. I don't know the last time you were sick, but I guarantee you it was probably in a better situation than him because the last place you wanna be is on a plane for about 15 to 20 hours traveling back from Africa while you're sick, okay? And that whole journey home was just miserable for this guy. And so I'm worried about angry boy on one hand and then I've got sick boy on another. And then to complicate things even further, a a third team member of mine, uh, ironically, he's not a US citizen. Uh, He's from Brazil. Don't worry, I'm not gonna mention any names, Lucas. Um, and, And so he's there. And, and he has lost his green card. And, and so there's this nagging question throughout the whole trip is, is Lucas going to actually be able to get back in the country with us? Do we know if this is going to work out? So he's gone to the embassy and they give him this little eight and a half by 11 manila folder and say, you've got to leave it sealed. If you open it, they're, they're not going to let you in. So we just, we just have this envelope. We have no idea what's inside. We don't know if it's documents. We don't know if it's money. And this is going to be his magical entry back to the U.S. And so it's all these issues that I'm flying home with and we land and I'm sitting there going, okay, I got angry boy on one side, I got sick boy on the other and I'm about to watch my first deportation of my life and I really, this is my first trip, okay? This is not the way I pictured it. And so we get through, angry boy leaves, he's not really in the mood to say anything to anybody. Uh, Ben leaves, he's sick, he's just trying to get home and get healthy. Lucas gets called into questioning. I mean, he's questioned, I don't know, 45 minutes. I, I don't know how long. 
something tells me it wouldn't have gone as well today if this had happened. But, but anyway, he's, he's sitting there being questioned, just, just a guess. And, and I'm, I'm in customs, and I'm sitting there thinking, am I about to have to walk out there and tell his wife that her husband is on a plane to Brazil, and I have no idea if he's going to be back again? Like, this is not how I pictured these trips happening. But thankfully, the Lord was gracious, and, and Lucas got through. And I get through on the other side of customs, and, and Jennifer's there. And she's like, well, how was your trip? I'm just like, well, I don't even know how to answer that question. And all I could tell her was, man, it is so good to be home. And, and that's really, I would say, as much as I love traveling, and, and no matter if it's a good experience or a bad experience, it, the most profound, I guess, compelling emotion that I tend to have is, is always at the end in that return trip home. Because even if it's good or bad, you, you get to a point where you're just tired of living out of a suitcase, right? You're, you're tired of being around that which is unfamiliar. There's something compelling about just wanting to return home. And that's the image I want us to cling to this morning. When we start thinking about what does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What we're going to see is that we're really just travelers here. And we're just, we're passing through this life. We're passing through this earth and we are headed home. And there's something compelling about that. That, That's going to help shape our understanding of our identity and our purpose and our awareness of what it means to be a disciple. So let's pray for God to open our eyes and our minds to the greater understanding of those things. Would you bow your heads? Father, we love you. And we pray that you would give us a greater sense and a greater understanding of who you are and what it means to follow you. Holy Spirit, come and fill our, our souls, our hearts, our minds and awaken us to a greater resolve to follow you no matter the cost. We love you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as I mentioned before, the, the, we started the year of 2017 talking through these key convictions, right? That we're going to put our hope in the one who makes all things new. And, and we're doing this by walking through these convictions that we're hoping will help shape our culture here. So we've talked about what does it mean to be gospel-centered, right? To be biblically guided, uh, to make sure that we're going to be prayer-driven. We're going to have a focus on fasting. All these different things we've worked through over the last several weeks And now we start the month of February with kind of a new subject. And this is going to be the question of discipleship. And this one to me is pretty important. And I'm pretty excited about it. In fact, we're going to be working through this topic of discipleship for several weeks. This will be more than just one sermon. Today is really more of an introduction. And the reason I want to do that is because to me, discipleship and being a disciple is one of the most essential characteristics of the Christian faith. I mean, it really is all-encompassing in a lot of different ways. Here's some of the struggles that I have sometimes when we think about discipleship. I want to make sure that we're, we're talking about it and using it in the same way. And I want you to understand how I view this word. See, the mistake that I think we can make in the American church is, is kind of twofold. One hand, we can kind of distort where we think discipleship begins. And then we can kind of misunderstand maybe how it's practiced. So for example, a lot of times when we start talking about discipleship, we, we tend to think about something that is post-conversion, right? After I've become a believer, after I've just prayed the prayer and I've made a decision, now I get to enter into discipleship. Evangelism is what takes place to the lost, right? That's what compels us to go and, and share our faith. Discipleship is what happens after we've become a believer. I would just tell you I disagree with that. That's not how I view discipleship. It is not a post-conversion experience. It is a representative term for all of the Christian walk. That when Jesus says, go and make disciples, he's not sending us to believers. 
He's sending us to the lost. Discipleship begins by going to the lost and bringing people into a greater understanding of who Jesus is. So when we use this word, I'm talking about the whole journey, not just something that happens after conversion. Now, the second thing I want us to be mindful of is that I feel that the American church has a tendency to understand the practice of discipleship by considering it to be a knowledge-based discipleship. And so we're really good at acquiring information. Right? We come in and we study, and we read, and we write, and we share, and we speak, and we go to conferences, and we do all these things, and we feel this knowledge of what does it mean to be a disciple. And while those things are good, and we don't want to lose those, we, we've skew, skewed the balance a little bit, and we've missed a critical component, which is that discipleship is not purely to be knowledge-based, but we need obedience-based discipleship as well. That it's not enough just to read about these things and to, to study what Jesus said and to actually consider how we should serve or think about what it looks like to share our faith. At some point, we have to actually go out and do it. I, I love the, the, the contrast between one of my friends who's a pastor in India, where there the bracelet is not WWJD, it's DWJD. See, here we, we sit around and we think, well, what would Jesus do? And it's knowledge-based. There they go, do what Jesus did. And I love that. So we need to also understand that this is a journey of radical obedience when we start talking about discipleship. And, and so these are the things that I want to make sure we understand as we begin this discussion today, that discipleship is, is fairly important, right? It's something that we're going to want to make sure that we understand. And ultimately what I want to suggest to us today is that it's the question of discipleship that gets us a greater understanding of our identity, of our purpose, who it is that we're supposed to be. See, this is the, the part that introduces us to that age-old question, right? What's the meaning of life? What, what am I supposed to do? Where do I find significance? Where do I find purpose? Well, anticipating that conversation, that if that's where this understanding of discipleship really begins, I decided to do a little research, kind of figure out what is the meaning of life. And, and I decided to ask some consultants that are pretty well-known these days. Uh, I decided to have a little conversation with Alexa and with Siri, Okay. And if you're unfamiliar with Alexa and Siri, these are the digital voice assistants that are out there with any Apple product or Amazon product, okay? So I sat down with my little Amazon speaker. Alexa's pretty cool. Push a button, you can ask her anything. Alexa, what's the weather like today? She'll tell you. Alexa, tell me a joke. She'll come up with a joke. She's pretty cool. So I sat down and I said, Alexa, tell me, what's the meaning of life? I'm not gonna lie, her answer was fairly confusing, disappointing, I didn't really understand it. She said, the answer is 42 but the question is far more complicated. I don't know if there's a joke in there. I really didn't get it, but that was what she said. So being a little disappointed with, with Alexa's answer, I, I went to Siri. Siri, what's the meaning of life? Here's what she said. Try being nice to people. Avoid eating fat. Read a good book every now and then. Get some walking in. Try to live together in peace and harmony with people of all creeds and nations. Thank you, Siri. That's pretty thoughtful, okay? Interesting philosophy that Siri brings to us. Now, I'm not suggesting that either Alexa or Siri can give us a real answer to the question, but isn't it interesting that, that in our technology today that even those digital assistants are prepared to answer this question? Because they know it's so frequently asked. People are always wondering, what is the meaning to life? What, what is the purpose in which I'm supposed to live and, and conduct myself? Right? These are the questions that, that drive us. Now, a lot of times they, they creep up on us in maybe a smaller category, don't they? Like, for example, we, we may start by thinking to ourselves, okay, what school should I go to? What, what do I need to study? What, what career do I hope I should have? 
You know, what, what kind of job should I pursue? What, what family do I hope to foster? What, what do I think I can achieve? We have all these questions that kind of influence our course and our path and are driven by, really, our understanding of our own identity and our own purpose. So one of two things tends to happen. And we ask these questions and, and we'll get a plan. Now, some of us will try to plan really far out. Some of us, it's maybe just a step at a time. But we plan nonetheless. And if we're lucky, these plans come to fruition. Right? We get into the school that we want to, we get the job that we want, we get the family that we want. And what ends up happening is, is we get all these things um, achieved and materialized and we realize we're still empty. They didn't give us the meaning and the significance we had hoped for. Or the other avenue happens, right? where maybe we hit a detour consistently along the way. We don't get our dream school. We aren't able to pursue the job that we want. We have to settle for something else. The picture of the family that we had hoped to doesn't become a reality. We, we can't achieve the things that we wanted to. And time and time again, we hit these detours and we again find ourselves at a place where we once again feel somewhat empty and driving and striving for an understanding of importance and purpose. And so if these are the things that drive our understanding of our identity, we need to ask ourselves, well, how do we, how do we find this? Where do we get a sense of understanding of who we are? And it's here that I would say, in order for us to really begin to understand discipleship, we need to have this conversation on the front end to realize that we are first and foremost created beings, right? We have a creator. And anytime you have this relationship between that which is created and a creator, it is the creator who determines the purpose, correct? Right? The carpenter sets the purpose for the chair, right? The, the author determines the purpose for a book. The manufacturer designs the purpose for a car. It was Steve Jobs that decides the purpose for the iPhone, correct? And so we could look at these items or a number of items and come up with alternative uses, come up with alternative plans. You could use these things for, for something else. But at the end of the day, they have a primary function, don't they? A chair is used for sitting, a book for reading, a car for driving, an iPhone to waste your life away, right? I mean, they all have a primary function. And so in order for us to understand our purpose, we need to first realize that we have a creator. And we need to strain to hear his voice. See, the difference between us and these created things is that we have the capacity to reason. We have the capacity to ask the question, why, why am I here? And that's where all these other voices come in. Voices from the culture, voices from friends, loved ones, family members, our own. So I'm curious today, what voice do you listen to? when trying to determine your purpose? Whose voice do you really hear? I'd be easy for you to give the church answer, right? Oh God, absolutely, the Bible, that's what tells me. What do you really believe? When you really think about your energy, your efforts, how you make decisions, where you find fulfillment, what voice do you really listen to? What tells you your purpose and your identity? See, one of the most amazing things about this journey of the discipleship is that when we begin to ask to hear the voice of the Creator, what we see is that our Creator speaks. He, he wants us to ask that question. He wants to reveal that purpose. I love the way the author of Hebrews puts it, right? That in the past, God has spoken to us, to our ancestors, in, in many different ways, through the prophets and in many different times. But in the most recent days, He has chosen to speak to us through His Son, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. God speaks and he reveals. Now, when we listen to the words of the creator, one of the first things he tries to draw our attention to is simply this. We're broken. 
We are broken. Something has gone wrong. That yearning you feel, that, that desire to understand your purpose is what is going to clue you into the fact that you were made for something else and you are frustrated in this life. We are bound by a body of sin and death. And yet God, in his great love for us, did not want to leave us in that state. And so while we were still sinners, Christ died for you and me so that we wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. He speaks. And he tells us what he is that he is doing to bring us that salvation, to bring us that rescue. And what I love about the way in which he speaks is that it always ends in an invitation. Our God is a God who invites. You see it through Paul. Paul's going to speak up and say, if you would believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then you'll be saved. Or Peter's going to stand up at Pentecost and explain how even the grave couldn't keep its hold on Jesus. And the crowd is going to shout back and say, well, then what should we do? He's going to say, repent, be baptized. For Jesus himself is going to walk among us and he's going to declare that the kingdom of God is in our midst. And he's going to bring us in close and he's going to say, come, follow me. Our God is a God of invitation. And the journey to discipleship begins with that invitation. Follow me. See, when we encounter this gospel, it demands a response. And it's either yes or no. There is no maybe. There's no in-between in this response. And this is, this is an invitation that is not just offered to us once. right? We don't just answer when we decide to walk down an aisle or pray or prayer or get baptized. This is an invitation that we should hear each and every day when we wake up. When we begin to understand our purpose and our identity, we should hear the voice of our creator saying, come and follow me. That's where discipleship begins. So how are we going to define this term? What, what does it mean? Well, even when you look at the Greek, that, that's essentially what it means, to follow. And it creates this, this understanding that we are following Jesus. Now, here's what's unique about Jesus' invitation. When you think about his setting and in that day, it would be more customary for the disciples to go and find the rabbi. Right? That when, when they wanted to be a disciple, when they wanted to follow somebody, they would go and find a rabbi and ask if they could follow him. But Jesus flips that on its head. And he's the one that, that doesn't wait to be found. He goes out and he seeks them and he's the one that extends the invitation. It's a beautiful picture that, that God is not waiting for Jesus to be found. No, he's pursuing us. He is, he is going out to seek and to save that which is lost, always extending this invitation, come and follow me. Now, once he extends that invitation, we see something pretty unique. Right? That Jesus is not inviting us just to a philosophy, now, he's not inviting us to a, a methodology or a religion or a practice. He's asking us to extend a commitment to himself. That's what he wants. And so the reason the, the disciples are so grieved upon the crucifixion is not because the legacy of his words were not enough. They wanted him. They were called to him personally. And they felt such strong devotion to him because they saw him as someone greater than a rabbi. They saw him as Messiah, Christ. Lord, Savior. And so the other thing that was unique about this calling is that in other situations, if you were going to be a disciple, one who followed another rabbi, at some point, there would progression would work to where you kind of graduated and you became a rabbi yourself. You would cease to be a disciple. You would begin to teach others. That's not the case with Jesus. We, we never graduate from this progression. Or we never become equal to or greater than Jesus. He is always Lord. He is always Savior, which means that we are always disciples. That is our identity. 
That's who we are. And that's who we're to become. So what does the response look like? How do we begin to understand what does it really look like to be a disciple if that's the essence of our identity? Well, in order to find a greater picture of this, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke. Okay, now a couple of things about Luke's Gospel that I think will help color this, this conversation that we're going to have in Luke chapter 14. You know, every Gospel writer structures their story of Jesus in a unique way. And they do that for a reason. They may have certain themes that they want to bring to attention. They may have certain messages that they're trying to, to bring to greater clarity. And so they have a unique structure. They're, they're an author still. Right? And they're putting it together according to their own uh, plan and purposes. So Luke has a unique structure. There, there's a critical turning point that happens in Luke's gospel in chapter 9. And it, it kind of begins to, to set a context and a backdrop for our understanding of Jesus and what he is doing. In chapter 9, verse 51, the scripture reads something along the lines that when it came time for him to be taken up into heaven, Jesus resolutely turned his face towards Jerusalem. And, and that word resolutely means he decided firmly. And from that moment on, when you read Luke's gospel, from, from 951 and on, you have this theme of Jesus traveling towards Jerusalem, that he has firmly decided that that is his destination. And it's a very powerful image when you consider it, because essentially we know what's waiting for him, don't we? He, he's marching to the cross. He, he's marching to his death. And that's his resolve. He has decided firmly that this is the purpose, this is the journey upon which I am on. And consistently throughout Luke's gospel, he reminds us of that journey. And it's with that context and that background that Jesus begins to teach on discipleship. So, so let me tell you how he sets the stage. He, he begins with a parable. And he begins by saying, you know, there's this banquet, a great banquet that's going to be held. And there's this master who tells his servants, go out and tell everybody that's been invited that it's time to come to the banquet. So they go out and they find these folks and, and they realize that nobody wants to respond to the invitation. They give these excuses. Oh, well, I just bought a field. I can't. I need to tend to the field. Oh, I just bought these oxen. I need to go and work them out a little bit. Oh, I just got married. I can't be there. So the servants come back and say they, they decline this invitation and the owner of the house becomes angry and frustrated. And he sends them back out and he says, well, then invite everybody in the streets because my house is going to be full. And those that refuse to respond to this invitation will have no room in this house. It's a pretty strong word. And it would be one that I would want us to, to at least stop and consider for a moment this morning. Right? What, what excuses do we offer that prevent us from hearing the call of God on our life? Right? What, do, what do we say? I'd love to pursue you, God. I'd love to do those things. But it's career. I've got these things that I've got to attend to. My, my family. I'm just not ready. I'm not capable. I'm not good enough. What, what excuses do we offer that prevent us from actually responding to the invitation of God himself? Well, Jesus is trying to explain that, again, there is no room for those excuses. The call of discipleship is one of radical obedience. So let's see how he describes it. Chapter 14, verse 25. <clears throat> Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Once you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it. For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, 
this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. This is a tough teaching. This is a, a challenging concept, but one that is critical for us to understand why discipleship is so important. That, that in order for us to first understand the work of Christ and what it is that we're going to be called to do, we need to first begin to understand our identity as disciples ourselves. And so he begins this discussion, and I want to make sure we pay attention to the context. Right? It starts with this pretty uh, important description. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. So again, we have the theme of traveling. Jesus is moving <clears throat> with a certain destima- destination and purpose in mind. But here he references crowds, which is a common literary technique in the gospel to create a distinction between the crowds and the disciples. There's a difference. See, the crowds would be associated with Jesus. They'd gather, they'd observe, they'd listen, but they wouldn't necessarily follow. I think that's important for us to consider this morning. There's something inherent in all of us that is drawn to crowds in some way, right? We we like the energy, we're curious. We want to see what the crowds are gathering for. So so we'll get in a crowd for a lot of different reasons, won't we? Entertainment, a cause, a purpose, fellowship, community. We we gather in crowds for a lot of different reasons. There's something innate within all of us that is kind of drawn to it. And and here's where I become grieved. I I feel that we have this impulse, and and as a result, we have a tendency in the American church to, to drive ourselves by the motivation and the obsession with crowds. And it's hard to not care about crowds, isn't it? When we look at those numbers, how many people came, how much money was given, are we growing? And we become so obsessed with that question that we begin to design ourselves and build ourselves into a church that is really driven for drawing in crowds more than it is to make disciples. Right? And so we'll, we'll tell people what they want to hear. Right? We'll, we'll, we'll make sure that we talk about the things that that will draw them in and give them a sense of understanding and will bring in these crowds and we miss the greater question and the greater call. So let me just be clear to you. When it comes to this church and our future, we're not going to be driven by numbers. This is not going to be a place for crowds to gather. It's going to be a place for disciples to be made. That's who we're going to be. And so what does that look like? What does it mean to be a disciple? Well, here's where Jesus' teaching gets pretty tough. He starts with this word, hate. If you come and you don't hate your father, your mother, your wife, your children, brothers, your sisters, yes, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. How in the world are we able to make sense of that? I mean, has Jesus lost his mind? Like, what, what, is he, what does he mean there? It's, it's challenging because it seems to be so out of tune with what he's typically said, which is probably the first key in us being able to understand what it is he's teaching here, right? We, we need to have context. This is not a literal instruction. He, he's not asking us to take this command literally <clears throat> because that would be so contradictory <clears throat> excuse me, to what he has said, right? Jesus has promoted love time and time again. 
Right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Turn the other cheek. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemies. So it's not like Jesus just all of a sudden changed his mind and was like, you know what, never mind. Let's just go hate everybody. That's a lot easier, okay? It, it, it's not a literal charge. But there's an element of this word here that, that has the connotation of to, to reject or to renunciate against something. So what I believe Jesus is saying here is that we have to reject and renunciate the notion that our identity is defined by these earthly relationships and roles. Those things, as important as they are, do not define you. I do. That's what Jesus is saying. We are not defined by the relationships that we have in an earthly setting. We're, we're defined by our response to Christ. So let me just explain that for a moment. Your identity is not based on what your parents want for your life and what they're telling you to do. Right? Your identity is not wrapped up in whether or not you grow up to be married. Your identity, your purpose is not here just so you can have children and, and give them a good education and hope that they become popular or athletes or successful or whatever it is. Those things do not define you. And maybe from another standpoint, I should acknowledge that many of us think about those family relationships and they're often broken. And we carry the wounds of a broken family. Well, then maybe be liberated today. The fact that you had an absent father does not define you. That the strain and the stress within your loved ones does not define who you are. We were created for so much more than this. So we need to reject and renunciate those ties that would bind and distract us from understanding that our greater call, our greater purpose is defined in Christ and Christ alone. That's what I believe he's saying. And so he compliments that message by saying, in fact, you must carry your cross and follow me. If you can't do that, you won't be my disciple. Now, the cross is a strong image, isn't it? It's an image of execution and death. This is the notion that, that following Jesus means dying to self. Right? This is not going to be an easy journey. And, and what I really love about this is that essentially God is asking us, or Jesus is bringing us into an understanding of where he's headed. Right? He is traveling to Jerusalem. He is going to be carrying his cross. This journey is going to end at a place where he is on his knees in the garden praying earnestly, not my will, but yours be done, even to the point of death. That's where he's going. And so if we're going to follow him, we must be ready to pray the same prayer and offer the same sacrifice. See, what Jesus is saying here in these opening lines is to be a disciple, it's costly. It's going to cost you something. See, th there are two things that I would probably suggest that, that prevent us from truly understanding the power of being a disciple. And the first one is that. We, we tend to fail to consider the cost, right? I mean, and Jesus really is trying to drive this home. To me, that's what these stories are trying to bring to attention. Or you've got this, this builder that needs to create a tower. And he's saying, wouldn't, wouldn't you first sit down and, and think about what this would cost you to see if you can finish it? Otherwise, you're going to be ridiculed as someone that started something and can't finish. Or if you were a king and you were going to war, wouldn't you first consider if you can take your 10,000 and beat the, the people with 20,000? Consider the cost. This is what it's going to be. This is going to be a costly journey. See, my fear is, is that too often... We build our churches and we construct this message that will bring people in and because we want crowds, we'll talk about heaven, right? We'll talk about grace, we'll talk about forgiveness, but we never really ask people to consider the cost. 
that following Jesus is actually going to cost us a great deal. So let's do that this morning, shall we? Let me ask you, what's it costing you to follow Jesus? What have you had to surrender? What have you had to let go of? See, the reality is, is that it's, it's going to cost us something, if not everything. So how would you answer that question? At some point, you're going to have to let go of something. It could be your dreams. It could be a relationship. It could be an addiction. It could be a lifestyle. It could be a philosophy. It could be comfort. It could be materialism. But it's going to cost you something. And so when you stop and consider what does it cost me to follow Jesus, if we can't answer that question, can I delicately suggest this morning that perhaps you're more in the crowds than you are amongst the disciples? We've got to consider the cost. If we're ever really going to be his disciples, we have to consider the cost. But the good news is, is it doesn't stop there. See, the other thing I think that can distract us and pull us away is not just that we fail to consider the cost, but we often forget to consider the reward and where it is that we're headed. This, to me, is where the identity of being a disciple gains great significance and power. This is what we can't miss. You go back to the way that Luke brings this journey up, and he brings it to our attention, and you see that, that Jesus resolutely sets his face towards Jerusalem, right? that he's traveling towards the cross, he's traveling towards the, 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 res, uh, the crucifixion and all those things that await him. But we must not miss how that verse begins and what it was that actually prompts this journey. For what the gospel writer says is that when it was time for him to be taken up to heaven, that that's what caused Jesus to turn his face towards Jerusalem. And what we begin to see here is nothing short of miraculous and moving and amazing. That Jesus is not really marching to Jerusalem, he's marching to heaven. Right? He's not just walking to the cross, he's walking to the ascension. Jesus isn't marching to death, he's trampling over death and he's going home. And what is amazing is that he has invited us on this journey with him. And we have this God that when he speaks and he conveys to us what it is we need and who we are, he doesn't send us into the battlefield on our own. He doesn't send us to the front lines to fight for ourselves. He says, no, I'll go before you, I'll fight this fight. You need only to be still, but follow me and I'll show you the way home. This is where we see we are travelers here. And we're, we are not made for this world. And so we follow the one who came and came before us and has shown us the way home. And that's where we find the power in this journey and the beauty in it. Let me, let me try to bring it to some clarity with one other point. A couple months ago, um, my grandmother passed away, as many of you know. And uh, she was 95 years old. She was an amazing woman. Had lived an incredibly um, long and full life. And so I was asked to come back and, and help facilitate the service. And that was pretty challenging for a lot of different reasons. Um, one of which is that it's, it's really impossible to put anybody's life into words in one service. Can't really do that. But it was especially challenging for me because I know a lot of people probably feel this way about their grandparents, but I just had a special connection with her. She was different. And we were pretty close. She was, she was very much a maternal figure to me. 
So it was hard to grieve when she was gone. And yet I sat down and I knew I had to figure out, okay, well, how do I remember her? What what memories do I have? And as I sat there and I thought about all the things that she meant to me and all the shared experiences, you know what I kept thinking of? I kept thinking of her home and how many wonderful times I had there when I was young all the way into adulthood. I had these memories of me laying on the ground playing with this blue box of Legos and all the games that she would teach me like Kings on the Corner and Grandmother May I and sitting there on a cold wintry night before her fireplace as it crackled in the, in the air there. All the home-cooked meals that she made for us. Loved that home. Safe. It was secure. Stability for me. And so I would reflect on those memories, and as I was doing so, I realized something that I think we all know, but, but hit me very powerfully in that moment, which is homes are not built on brick and mortar. It's not what makes them special. Their homes are built on love. And the magic of her home, the magic of those memories and those experiences weren't, weren't the house, the rooms, it was her. She's been gone a couple of months, and you know, it's fresh in many respects, but I'd do anything to see her again. Just give her a hug, tell her I love her. She's what made it special, not our home. That, to me, is the image we need to carry when we think about our identity as disciples. When we see that this journey has taken us to heaven, it's not that we get heaven. Not that we get everlasting life and all these other things. See, the power of understanding our identity as disciples is to realize that we're not defined by our earthly father, we're defined by a heavenly one. To be a disciple is to be a child of God. <laughs> and he's come and he saved us and he said, I'm bringing you home. And so we move on this journey, we travel through this life not looking for a destination, looking for him. See that ultimately he's allowing us to come back and to be with him again. That's the power in the journey. That's why we consider the cost. That's why we consider the reward. That's why we want to be disciples who can be travelers here because we see that he's calling us home and we'll get to be with him again. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Father, we confess that so many things define who we are these days. So many voices come in and tell us where we find worth, where we find significance, where we find purpose. And I pray that those voices just would fall silent And we would hear you, our creator, our father. And whatever it is we need to surrender, Father, whatever it is that we think we we can't let go of, Father, let us surrender those things today and let us follow you no matter what. And let us not do so out of obligation and fear and compulsion, but of an undying love to be with you again. 
Let that be what defines us. Let that be what prompts and guides our hearts each and every day. We love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as I said earlier, our God is a God of invitation. And so that's more than just a 30-second reference at the end of a sermon, kind of giving you the clue that it's time for lunch. Right? It's, it's bigger than that. And so whatever it needs to be for you today, even if it's not in this moment, respond faithfully. If you want to come join the church, come join. If you want to make a decision to follow Christ and make him your Lord and Savior, let's do it. Let's celebrate that together. If you need prayer, then let's do that. Maybe it's a response that occurs outside of these walls and throughout the rest of the week. Whatever he's inviting you to do, let's respond faithfully and be known as his children, his disciples that follow him wherever he goes. Just stand together and let's sing the song of invitation. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God. day that you can get tickets for the brunch with Jennifer Smith that's happening this Saturday. So the, the ladies will be out in the hallway for you to get your tickets, and you'll want to do that, ladies, uh, to be a part of that. And uh, Jeremiah, I'll turn it over to you, sir. Thanks, Casey. All right, well, I want to introduce some good friends of mine. Chance and Jordan, come on up. Now, this is soon to be <clears throat> Mr. and Mrs. Hutter, oh. right? May 12th. Is that what we're talking about here? So we've got a young, engaged couple here. I've, I've known them for several years. I'm very excited that they've decided to come and make this their church home today. And so we want to celebrate <clears throat> that decision 
And I would obviously ask that as a response to y'all's gesture to come forward and, and dedicating yourself to this church to see if the church could offer a same commitment and promise. And so if you would agree to be in the church home that they need to love them, support them, and encourage them, would you make that decision official by saying amen? Amen. 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 All right, well, we were so pumped. I'm excited for you guys. And uh, come by here at the end of the service and give them all sorts of marriage advice, okay? Yeah. Just tell them everything that they need to know, okay, the good and the bad. But we're gonna ask you guys to stand up here as we sing this last song, but it's been a good day. Uh, we wanna continue to celebrate and move forward and acknowledge this Sabbath day of rest that God has given us, but let us do so with a greater understanding of what it means to follow him. So why don't you stand, join hands, and let's sing this sending song. this week.